0: Welcome to the Data Brilliant Podcast with me, Joe Dos Santos, Chief Data Officer at Click. In this series, we explore how data is reshaping and redesigning the future of our business and personal worlds. From business leaders to educators to public figures, we'll be joined by experts who will give us a fresh perspective on the world through data. Today I'm joined by Kate Darling, a leading expert in robot ethics. Kate is a researcher at the MIT Media Lab, where she investigates social robotics and conducts experimental studies on human-robot interactions. With a background in law, she now increasingly works at the intersection of law and robotics, and co-taught a robot ethics course at Harvard Law School. Welcome to Data Brilliant, Kate.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. And by here, I mean at home, where there's construction happening outside of my window as we speak. So if you hear any noise, That's the problem, but I'm so glad to talk to you, Joe.
0: Sign of our times, sign of our times. So, Kate, you have a fascinating background that brings you to a very unique place where robots, law, ethics. I wonder if you could share with our listeners a little bit about the path that got you here.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Um, (laughs) I never dreamed that I would wind up in. A field that combined all of my interests, and somehow that happened. And uh, I guess it's probably best explained by um, me having gone to law school, being very interested in how systems shape society, Um, getting very interested in robotics, uh, especially after I bought this robot toy that was this very cute baby dinosaur robot that could um, mimic lifelike behavior and, uh, that I bought because I was interested in the technology, but then I found myself developing feelings for it and thought that was very interesting. So that sparked a curiosity. And then I went on to, um, work at a tech university and then I wound up at MIT and suddenly all of my interests came together because I realized that robotics and AI are a technology, technological system that is shaping society. And so, um, I brought my legal and social science knowledge to the uh, to to the technology, and it it turns out that some of the most interesting questions of our current time lie at the intersection of disciplines like that. So I wound up with my dream job where I can just play with robots all day. It's amazing.
0: <laughs> and it turns out that you're not alone in your love for robots, and we'll get into that as we get through this conversation. Um, so one of the things that I'd like to open with, uh, you open your latest book, which is called *The New Breed*, with a quote from Eleanor which is "Never ask a roboticist what a robot is." I'm going to violate that rule right now, and uh, <laughs> as we as we start to kind of get into this idea of what robots are going to be in our life and how AI is affecting the universe, I thought we should start off with what's a good definition? What's a robot?
1: It's such a good question and such a complicated one. Um, there is no universal definition of robot. And part of why I wrote this book is because I feel like we have a lot of misconceptions of what a robot is. Um, and and we need to be more creative in thinking about what a robot is and can do and can be and can do. Um, but yeah, my my son thinks that a robot is you know any metallic object that says beep boop. Um, some people think a robot is uh, looks like looks like a human and is made out of metal. Um, that is certainly what Google Image Search uh, believes a robot is. And um, if you ask a roboticist, most of them will have a definition that's kind of like, okay, it's a, it's a physical entity, a machine that can sense its environment in some way, that can make a decision based on the data that it has collected and can act on its environment again. And, you know, that sounds pretty good and you know, tech savvy, but when you break that down, even that gets complicated because a smartphone by that definition is a robot. It can act on its environment by lighting up or vibrating, and yet no roboticist would call a smartphone a robot. So it's very complicated. What I do think is really important is that we get away from or at least expand on the definition that we have come up with that is influenced by science fiction and pop culture of this quasi-human metal machine. I mean when you're talking about AI, for the most part, still today, you're talking essentially about data, because even though there are some other ways to train algorithms, I mean, it's the most powerful machines and machines that can learn. um, They rely on learning from huge data sets. And I you know, I don't see that changing. I see, the, I see different methods being developed, but I, some of the most powerful applications today are, are relying on data collection. And so, I don't know, I, I, I think data is powerful and um, I think people underestimate the extent to which it is already kind of undergirding everything that we interact with but definitely a force to be reckoned with, right?
0: Yeah, and I think that you describe the introduction of these technologies into our, let's say, manufacturing life and corporate life as being an overall boon to job production, that in fact, people are nervous that all of our jobs are going to be replaced by computers, but that's been a lot slower than people have contemplated. But um, I think you quote one of your authors as saying, well, that's kind of an argument that can only be made from a great academic height. You know, it doesn't matter if your job is the one that's replaced. Um, and I wonder if you you think that that is something that, that uh, politicians or experts need to explain, something about kind of macro gains, micro losses, and the politics that might be associated with that.
1: Absolutely. Oh, I'm so glad you picked up on that. That's one of my favorite quotes. It's Peter Frey's wrote a book called Four Futures in which he says... Yes, it's true that robots haven't, you know, taken jobs. If we look at this from a bird's eye perspective, but that neglects to take into account some of the harm that has occurred as disruption happens on the ground. And so, I think that robots, uh, on the whole, like they're they're not. If robots were about to take everyone's jobs then that would have already happened in the pandemic. Like (laughs) surely robots would have stepped in with all of these labor shortages. Robots are not ready to do that. But I also think it's really important to be forward thinking and see that even if we could recreate human ability and skill and use robots to replace people, that's not the potential of this technology. The potential is not to recreate what we already have. The potential is to think more creatively about labor in general and to address some of the disruption that is happening on the ground um, which has a lot more to do with our conception of labor and some of the unbridled corporate capitalism that we see and how um, certain classes of workers are mistreated um, and and I think that there are ways that technology is being integrated that harms people even further so if you look at kind of the warehouse workers and the factories that have been turned into robots themselves they have these scan guns that count down the seconds between their activities. I think that viewing humans as kind of a cog in the wheel of a machine and just like hoping to automate them away someday is how a lot of companies are approaching labor. And it's, it's so much harder to think creatively about how to develop supplemental skill sets and combine what humans are good at and robots are good at. And it's much harder to address the political issues that are the real um, cause of harm on the ground But those are really the conversations that we need to be having instead of the technological determinism that I see everywhere, that the robots are coming to take our jobs.
0: Yeah, and I think that you also point out you have these very funny stories that kind of come throughout your book around your own experiences with robots and how people's expectations around what these robots can do is not shared by roboticists because you're on the ground seeing how dumb they are <laughs> and how they fall over dead and, and they make so many mistakes, right? And uh, you have a great story about it. Elon Musk has been famously saying, you know, the robots are coming. We all need to have – be concerned about AI that is going to be, you know, putting humans out of business in five years and then he tried to automate his own plant and had to apologize and say uh, yeah humans are underrated so both the pace of change is not quite at the speed of what we're seeing but then also kind of the way by which we employ those is not is not exactly um how how someone might envision in a sci-fi movie he, uh, robots can't understand concepts and they can't make decisions. They can only do what you tell them to do. And in some respects, I think your hypothesis is that you you envision a world in which machines are, are a tool that is used by humans in this kind of augmented intelligence kind of way, as opposed to something that does something for us or instead
1: Absolutely. of us. Absolutely. Yes. And oh yeah, the the Elon Musk story was it's it's entertaining and, and also informative because I think for most people I think we already believe that the factories have been automated mostly. Like, it, it, you take a very predictable predictable environment, like an assembly line, and surely the state of robotics in, you know, the year of our Lord 2022 is such that we can automate an assembly line. No, we can't. We have not been able to automate an assembly line. We've been able to automate parts of it, big parts of it, but there's always going to be some task where a human has a skill that the machines don't have, like recognizing when a screw falls on the ground, or it, when something, when something, when anything goes wrong, which even in the most predictable environment, humans can deal with that uncertainty. Humans know, have common sense, and they know what to do in that situation, and a robot does not. And it's not that the machines aren't getting better and smarter. It's that They perceive the world very differently than people do, and their intelligence is different. And so, instead of trying to get them to recognize the screw, we could be thinking creatively about ways that we can tap into the human creativity and ability and really lean into what the machines are good at and have people work together. So, I think the future is not full automation, the future is human robot interaction. So the book is, is it's about robots, obviously, but it's also about our history with animals because I feel like animals are the perfect analogy, not because animals and robots are the same, but because they really hammer home this idea that these technologies are supposed to be a partner in what we're trying to achieve and not something that replaces human ability. So the augmentation that you talked about, we've used animals throughout millennia to help us do jobs better, to plow our fields, to help us in transportation, to help us deliver things, um, to help us, you know, recognize the, the gases in the coal mines. We've used canaries. And mm-hmm. and so all of these things that we can do that augment our own abilities, that augment our physical abilities, our sensing abilities, I think that that's the perfect analogy for how we should be thinking about robots and AI, because that's the true potential of the tech to partner with us, to augment us, not to replace us.
0: Yeah. And I think part of the uh, point that you bring up in your book is this this lens of thinking things through the animal lens also makes it so that um, we avoid this example of uh, lieutenant data on Star Trek. If you think about this learning capability as being kind of really broad-based and 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 kind of under, able to understand ethics and different kinds of things like that, you have a higher expectation of those things. And I think your point is, a, we're way far away from from our robotics or our AI being able to get there. They're much more discreet. And B, that's probably not even desirable. That kind of that kind of human approximation probably wouldn't even be desirable for us to have.
1: Yes. Oh, I love it. Joe, you are such a good book reader. I feel like you are putting my arguments in better words than I even did in the book. But yes. <laughs> Happy to help. <laughs> yes, that is exactly it, right? We should... It, We need to understand that the machines can't do these things that we expect and that that's not even desirable. Like, why would we want to do that when we have the opportunity here to think more creatively about what role we want these technologies to play in our society, whether that's in the workplace, whether that's as our social companions, whether that's talking about, you know, the robot rights idea, which always comes back to, and I love that Star Trek episode with um, Lieutenant Commander Data, where they have to decide whether he's a Starfleet property and can be disassembled or whether he has any rights because he also has duties. Um, it's, it's a fantastic episode, but so much of our science fictional narratives are comparing robot rights to human rights and making this Um, assumption that, well, once the robots are sufficiently like us, then they will deserve rights like us. And I just think the history of animal rights is a much, much better predictor of how this is going to go, because what we're, we're not going to see, you know, these androids walking around like Commander Data and like clearly deserving human rights. We're going to have so many different designs of robots and capabilities and skills and just like we've been very confused about the animal world and which animals should deserve rights, we're going to see the same confusion here. And if we're not careful, we're going to default to just protecting those things that we emotionally or culturally relate to. Uh, like, you know, in, uh, where I live, we don't eat dogs, um, but we eat pigs, right? So mm-hmm. <laughs> that that's not that's a, 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 a real emotional, emotionally driven default that has nothing to do with inherent biological criteria. And I think we're going to see the same for robots if we ever do get to a point of discussing robot rights where people are going to want to protect the cute ones and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's going to have nothing to do with their abilities. So, yeah, I, I think I think the animal parallel is, you know, it doesn't work in every aspect, but I think it's a really important stepping stone to get people away from this constant human comparison.
0: Yeah, and I wonder if you could share a story about the military's use of robots that were designed to uh, identify and get rid of uh, minefields, uh, and uh, what the actual reaction of the soldiers was for this, towards this robot that was doing them a great service by stepping on the landmines that they in fact would not need to step on.
1: Yes, um, there are a few, there are actually a few stories, and, you know, talk about a dirty, dangerous job. Um, what a great use case for robots, setting a robot out onto a minefield or uh, to a site where there's a suspected bomb, where we used to have to send a, a human to, to do these things, and now we can send a machine. Um, and the, the machines have been designed to you know take the blow instead of uh, a human operator, but what mel- members of the military have discovered is that um it's kind of hard to watch that happen so there's a there's an amazing story that was in the Washington Post in I think two thousand and seven, so this has been going on for a while. Uh, There was a a minefield robot that was shaped like a stick insect and they were testing it for for use in the military. And the colonel who was overseeing the testing exercise was watching this robot walk with all of its many legs, like its stick insect legs, over the minefield. And every time it stepped on a mine, one of the legs would blow up and it would continue on the remaining legs. Um, And he said, we can't use this robot. This is Inhumane to watch this robot drag itself across the battlefield on, mm. you know, with with torn up legs, so it was evoking something in him. Even though he knew it was a machine, he said that it, it it evokes a human experience, and it it's too hard to watch. And you've this this wasn't the only example. There's been actually research done on soldiers who become emotionally attached to the bomb disposal robots that they work with. Uh, you know, they'll name them. They'll have uh, funerals for them with gun salutes they'll give them medals of honor they'll get emotionally distressed when when the robots you know are destroyed by by a bomb and um, while it's better to you know send the robot than a human, I think we definitely have underestimated the emotional attachments that people can develop to these machines and what that means in practice
0: I'd like to get to the idea of your pet construct a little bit, and the human attachment to things. So um, you did an experiment uh, with a robotic dinosaur with some friends of yours. And it was really to test uh, how attached people could get to an animal that was responding with certain cues, uh, back to uh, feelings of, you know, uh, goodness and badness happening around them. And I wonder if you could share the story of what happened uh, with your friends and their attachment to these robotic dinosaurs.
1: Yeah. Um, it was, it's, it's so funny thinking back to this. Um, I, yeah. So when I first when I was in law school and I bought this cute baby dinosaur robot that I felt an emotional attachment to, one of the things that I would have my friends do when I showed it off to them was hold it up by the tail because it had a tilt sensor in it. So it could tell, like if you held it upside down by the tail, it could tell that it was dangling in the air And so it would start to cry and, um, squirm around, uh, so mimic, you know, pain and wanting to be put down and which, you know, that's a pretty cool thing for a toy from, you know, 2007 to be able to do, but Mm -hmm. it also really started to bother me when people would hold it up too long (laughs) and I would say, okay, that's enough now let's put it back down. And I was telling another friend about this, um, and he happened to be part of this conference in, uh, in Switzerland. And he was like, let's do a workshop on this. And so the conference bought us five of these baby dinosaur robots. And we brought like 30 people together and we made teams. And we gave each team a, a baby dinosaur robot and had each team name their robot and play with it and interact with it. And then like after 45 minutes to an hour, we unveiled a hammer and a hatchet and a knife. And we tried to get them to start torturing the robots, um, Mm. you know, quote unquote torturing. And uh, originally we thought, okay, this is going to be interesting because some people are going to be like, oh, yeah, sure. It's just a robot. And some people are going to have more of an issue with it. But actually, they all just totally refuse to do it. Um, And (laughs) so we had to we had to improvise. At some point we said, "Okay, you can save your team's robot if you take a hammer to another team's robot. And uh, they couldn't even do that. And finally, we we had to end the workshop by saying that we were going to destroy all of the robots unless someone took the hatchet to one of them. And when that robot got you know hit in the in the neck, but like people were wincing and turning away. And then we had this half joking, half serious moment of silence in the room for the fallen baby dinosaur robot. Um, it was I mean it changed my life because I was like this is so interesting. I really need to know what's going on here. And it inspired later research that I did at MIT. Um, Yeah, just a very interesting time in my life (laughs) trying to get people to torture dinosaurs.
0: (laughs) And at at the end of the day, You you mentioned a number of times that the idea is that it's these cues that we're responding to. And increasingly, I think AI is powering the kind of more effectiveness of these cues, right? You can have a a more highly accurate, more highly appropriate response to certain kind of conditions. And I wonder how that's affecting where we're headed with this. And I wonder how, you know, what do we think about that in terms of representing life thought are we kind of equivalent making an equivalency between something thinks and therefore something's alive
1: mm, that's a good question well on the yeah I mean on the data question you know absolutely I think if something isn't learning and improving on its ability to interact or you know do, yeah, in, in the social robotics context, for sure, like a robot needs to be improving on its ability to interact with people. And that requires for the most part, a lot of data, um, right? That's, that's how we train, still train most um, algorithms by, by using data. So uh, yeah, I, I, that's just like, incredibly important right now. Um, and so if you can put autonomous movement in a robot Plus, this idea that it's making its own decisions, i.e., thinking, then that that really, I, I think it's almost impossible for us to not project agency onto that. Um, so mm. it's you know, I it, and, and and certain cultures view this a little bit differently because they don't make such a huge distinction between something that's alive and something that's not. So there's indigenous cultures or there's um, The the indigenous religion in Japan, Shintoism, that is kind of, um, it it views everything as having a soul and having uh, life inside of it. And so there's less of this uh, weird um, mental gymnastics going on in those societies when they encounter a robot. But in our society, I think what, what is starting to happen is we're getting very confused because we have this distinction between living things and non-living things. And yet we're treating the robots like living things. And that's just going to increase as they come more into shared spaces where people are interacting with them.
0: It's interesting. So, you know, we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about AI, advancing of AI and kind of its utility and perils. And what's interesting about your point here is that um, we might be willing to accept AI if it's packaged better. Right? So we can, if if you give us something that looks too much like a human, it'll freak us out. If you give something that looks like a, sale, we, a seal, we could accept it. And this could be some way for us to figure out not um, a way to make it so that the AIs can be more useful to us. And, and also potentially a, a watch point that says that's kind of scary, because we might fall sucker to something that is telling us to do something we shouldn't just because it's awfully cute.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. There's actually this whole subfield of human robot interaction, which is the discipline I'm in. There's a subfield called persuasive robotics, which is all about can you get a robot to get a person to change their beliefs or behaviors? And obviously that's like really useful in health and education, like if you can get people to, you know, want to learn French or, you know, uh, have a better therapy experience and you're doing something that's for the user's benefit, that's wonderful. But now think about, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, the the whole business of advertising and persuasive design to change people's beliefs and behaviors in order to get them to buy more products, which may or may not be in the user's interest. So I think we're going to see some pretty tricky... I think, consumer protection issues as as uh, I think we start to realize how just how persuasive the design of AI and robotics can be if done right. So that's what concerns me.
0: So let's talk a little bit about this kind of view of robots through the lens of capitalism, even. Um, so on our last podcast, we were speaking with futurist Brett King. And he's written a book that's called The Rise of Techno Socialism. And, you know, effectively, he looks at some of the same things that you're looking at, which is we can't have a system in which the, you know, the, the upper 1% become, you know, trillionaires at the expense of people losing their jobs on the shop floor, that ultimately, we need to kind of rethink how AI and robotics and such are going to be um, used a little bit more ubiquitous. But in some respects, capitalism itself fights against that. Um, and so what do you see in terms of, I'm asking you to put your futurist hat on, where do robots go and what does our society look like a hundred years from now in terms of us, our interactions, um, potentially our, our politics, our, our, our society in terms of our interaction with AIs and robots a hundred years from now?
1: So I think the, the thing that I really, really want people to understand is that it depends on us because with ai and robotics i see so much of this determinism like oh you know the the robots are going to come and they're going to replace the work and they're going to do this and there's so much agency put on the technology itself in in determining our future and what our future is going to look like and i think when you talk about things like capitalism and you know market forces that are you know, a, basically a political problem and not a problem with the technology, I think that we need to get people away from blaming the robots for certain futures or hoping that the robots will solve certain problems and actually talk about some of the things that we want and how to make those happen outside of the, you know, the technology itself itself. Um, So I think we need to take some agency back from the robots. And if we can do that, I am hopeful that there is a path forward. I'm actually still an optimist, even though I I see so many uh, dangers in our path or challenges. I do think that there's a path forward where we choose a different conception of labor, where we think more long-term and more outside of the box and creatively about how we integrate these technologies, where we integrate them in a more inclusive way so that they're not just benefiting the 1%, where we have more design justice and more people involved in creating technology that benefits everyone. I think there are paths to doing this. I think the paths do not have to do with the technology itself and have all to do with our political and other systems that set the right incentives.
0: Amazing. Amazing. Kate, you'll be speaking at our ClickWorld virtual conference on May nineteenth. And for anyone interested in hearing more on that, please visit click.com forward slash ClickWorld to register and find out more details on that panel. And uh, Kate, where else can our listeners go if they want to find out more about you and your work?
1: Oh, good question. Um, I have a website that I should probably update sometime. (laughs) And (laughs) I'm on Twitter. I I spend a lot of time on Twitter complaining about things or talking about Cheerios or sometimes talking about my work and robots.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Terrific. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Brilliant, brought to you by Click and hosted by me, Joe Dos Santos. Robots are coming, but not like you think. Enabled by AI advancements, robots have the potential to change our lives for the better, like a companion, a tool, or a pet. And as Kate Darling reminds us, we already have our model, animals. This will require us to change our attitudes a little bit about technology, culture, and maybe even economics. But Kate Darling encourages us to welcome this change, one that can create and support a future of human flourishing. Think about the importance of having and acting on good data in your life and in your organization. To discover how you can solve your most complex data challenges with a real-time active intelligence analytics data pipeline that generates better insights and more value from your data, visit Click.com. That's Q L I K.com.